last week we started a new series called Lamb's Foundations, Rooted in Faith, Hope, and Love. And last week I introduced the series by asking this question of why faith and hope and love as the things that we are to be rooted in. Um, And, you know, I, I think that for as often as these three things, faith, hope, and love, are mentioned together in Scripture, we don't think in these terms often enough. We looked at several places last week where faith, hope, and love are identified as core character traits of a Christian life. Now, one of those was the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And in the very back of your worship guide, um, this passage is printed there again, uh, along with the outline of this series that we're in. And so, I'd like to, just to have this passage fresh in our minds, I'd like to look at it again with you. If you like, you can turn to it there in the back of the worship guide. Listen to these verses from the Apostle Paul, and I'd ask you to notice again how faith, hope, and love here are rooted in relationship to the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His grace hope in God's glory, a hope that's nurtured through trials and sufferings, and love poured out into our lives by the Spirit. In this passage and in others too, faith, hope, and love are this, uh, what we've called a virtue triad that is rooted in relationship to the triune God. So when we are rooted and growing in relationship to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we also grow in these virtues of faith, hope, and love. But on the flip side, when we're not rooted in a relationship, a growing relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we instead gravitate toward a lack of faith, toward unbelief, a lack of hope, even despair at our darkest, worst moments, and a lack of love, sometimes even hatefulness. One of the very early church fathers named Irenaeus, he lived soon after the apostles who wrote the New Testament letters for us. Uh, Irenaeus is famous partly for having been known this bishop named Polycarp, and Polycarp was discipled by the apostle John, who we believe wrote our gospel and the book of Revelation. And uh, I'm a little bit of a history nerd, and so it's really exciting for me to think about this early church father who was so closely connected with one of the apostles. Now, it, it must have been so humbling for a church father like that. He, did, he wasn't called a church father in his day. He was just a guy, but he knew that he was carrying on this faith, that, and the apostles had passed away. It must have been very humbling. Irenaeus wrote this thing that has become pretty famous. He said this, The glory of God is man fully alive. 
The glory of God is man fully alive. And what he meant by this was that God's glory is on display when we live lives that overflow with traits like faith, hope, and love. When we become like fruitful trees in the art and our worship guide that bears the fruit of God's Spirit, our lives become vibrant with God's love. That's the glory of God. Man, fully alive, bearing the fruit of God's Spirit. So in this series, we're asking what it is we're to have faith in. What, what are we to believe that causes us to bear fruit for God? What are we to hope for that causes us to bear fruit for God? And what or, or how are we to love in such a way that we bear fruit for God? Now, last week we started out uh, out of order because it was baptism of our Lord Sunday. So we started by looking at two places God meets us with hope the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. But this morning, we're going back to the beginning to look at what we're to have faith in. What, what are we to believe as God's people? Now, here's the thing. The primary resource for this whole series is Scripture. In speaking of faith, hope, and love as core virtues of a truly human life, in speaking of a triune God, in speaking of the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist, and everything else we're going to refer to throughout this series, Scripture will be taken for granted. This is just the way it is in our church. We believe that Scripture is authoritative for our church and for our lives. It is foundational for us as it has been for Christians throughout time and, and his, throughout history and across geography. This has been consistent. So our, our guiding doctrinal statement in the Anglican Church is called the 39 Articles. I know that you guys read this regularly in the evenings for, you know, just fun. So I, I can't tell you anything new about it. But there are two articles in the 39 Articles on Scripture. And I think they're really helpful for us. One of them speaks to the Scripture's sufficiency to guide us to salvation. It especially warns us against additional rules or requirements people might want to add on to what the Scriptures say that are is necessary for our salvation. So I saw the other day there's this uh, televangelist who said that voting for Trump was a litmus test for whether you are a Christian or not. And you hear about other versions of this, people trying to add qualifications for a relationship with Christ. There are some churches who have claimed that they are the only true church, and so therefore, to be a real Christian, you have to be a part of that church. I'm so grateful that no one gets to decide on extra litmus tests for people's salvation. The scriptures provide the final analysis for this. Now, the other article, that, that's one article. It, it deals with the Scripture's sufficiency for our salvation, for teaching us about salvation. It tells us, beware of anybody who'd say you have to have anything else as a qualifier for this. Now, the other article deals with this sticky issue of how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And this one is extremely helpful. I, I think especially in our day, where people would say that the Old Testament is this very ancient, outdated form of God, and the New Testament is this updated, really loving, modern form of God. 
So this article tells us that even though the rites and ceremonies of the Old Testament are discontinued with Christ, and the civil governmental laws that governed Israel, these are not to be reinstituted anywhere now as blanket laws for a society. But then it says Christians are still not free from obedience to the moral issues of the Old Testament. And that's really helpful to point out. The moral issues like the Ten Commandments. Because many of these things are actually reaffirmed in the New Testament, not discontinued. Now, why am I telling you all this? The reason, I, reason I'm raising these for you is, is simply to say that our church, our denomination, and Christians throughout history have submitted themselves to all of Scripture as a foundational authority for life and for salvation. That's the point I'm making here. And for someone to try being a Christian in a different way, so to try picking and choosing the good stuff they like from the Bible, for instance, this is an aberration. This is not normal within Christianity at any point. And so we should be very suspicious of it. We should reject it. Now, the bigger reason that we're going to talk about Scripture this morning, and the reason this is going to be the first part of our foundation series as a church from here on out, is because we are surrounded by questions and challenges to Scripture's authority. This is just what it's like living in the world. People question whether it's possible for Scripture, this ancient book, to have full authority over their lives in the 21st century. This isn't new, but it is almost overwhelming in the world today. So this is what I want to speak to this morning. What do we mean as a church and as Christians when we say that Scripture has authority? What do we mean by this? Now I'm going to start in what I'm, I'll admit is a somewhat odd way to start, but there's good reason for this, so hang with me, okay? I want to tell you first what we don't mean by this, by Scripture having authority. What we don't mean is that Scripture itself is God. We do not mean that Scripture itself is God. There are, denomina there are religions that treat their holy book as if it, it in itself is God. Christians don't do this with the Bible. Now, why do we have to say this? This has long been a temptation to turn the Bible itself into God instead of listening to the Bible as a way of engaging in relationship with God. The temptation is actually the strongest among very religious people. This is the exact thing that Jesus warned about when he spoke to the religious leaders of his day, Pharisees and others, who were some of the most devout Bible people you could ever meet. If you want to ask who loves the Bible and you lived in Jesus' day, you would say the Pharisees. They love the Bible. But here's what Jesus says to the religious leaders in one place. Now, in case you're taking notes, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus says to them, You study the Scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. And it is these same Scriptures that testify about me, but 
you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. What was the problem for these religious leaders? They spent a lot of time reading the Bible. They had it, more of it memorized than any of us, the best of Christians today. But they treated the Bible sort of like a moral pull-up bar. As a way of trying to become morally superior rather than a way of actually entering into a living relationship with God. Now listen again to what Jesus tells them. It is these same scriptures that testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So they study and study. They memorize and memorize. But they miss the most essential point to the Bible. The way that it points us to Christ. And the way that it seeks to bring us into intimate union with Christ. Now, I don't think anyone would intentionally turn Scripture into a God. No one does this on purpose. Surely the religious leaders didn't start out trying to do that. But this can happen when we engage the Bible as an object to be mastered rather than a means of living in relationship. And this is why uh, with our ministry to children at Church of the Lamb, for instance. We want them to learn the Bible more and more as they grow up. We do. We want the, be, the Bible to be in their hearts and in their minds, for them to be able to recall it when they need it. And yet we also want them to be learning what it means to live in relationship with the one that the Bible points to, with Christ. And so the emphasis in our children's ministry, especially with our youngest children, is to introduce Scripture within a particular setting of quietness, love, and prayer. Because reading the Bible is to be connected with all of these. Within a conversation with God of prayer. So the point of Scripture is to be in a living relationship with Christ who is, as we heard in our gospel reading from John 1, the Word made flesh, the embodiment of the Word. So, what does it mean, what do we mean that Scripture has authority? We, we don't mean that Scripture itself is God, that it is an object to be mastered. Now that we've said this, now, now that we've said what we don't mean, what do we mean? Well, one thing we do mean is that God has authority and he has placed his authority in Scripture. I'll say that one again. God has authority and he has placed his authority in Scripture. Okay, for a long time in our culture, we thought of authority as existing outside of us. Okay, so stay with me, listen closely. Authority existed in older people like parents or in a larger community or a nation even that we were responsible for in government officials and in God to some degree. Most decisions for a long time for most people were processed in a larger context of a family, a community, and a faith. So even on this simple level of uh, what a ch child would do for a vocation when they got older, a lot of that had to do with what a father did, right? 
a lot of these decisions were made in a larger community. Now, in some ways, there's been this positive shift in our culture. We've come to appreciate more the unique uh, gifts that individuals bring into the world. So instead of a child being forced to take on a family business, they can now pursue their own gifts. Parents encourage them, do what you would like to do, what you're made to do. And that's a wonderful thing. But there's another effect in this shift that's taken place in our culture. Our sense of authority has shifted from sources that are outside of us to sources that are inside of us. So the most significant source of authority in most Americans' lives is themselves. Doesn't have anything to do with what's outside, some larger purpose in life, some faith. It has to do with us, me. We get to decide not only our career, but our very identity. Who am I? I get to decide that. But faiths like Judaism and Christianity push hard against this. They've always said that when we choose to follow ourselves as our highest authority, we become slaves. We become slaves to our own wandering and frequently misled desires and instincts. We lose track of all the reliable ways of understanding ourselves and our place in the world. Now it's in the midst of this personal and moral muddle that our world has created that scripture brings us into relationship with our creator. It introduces us to an external authority who is reliable. Scripture bears God's authority. We end up having to resist our modern tendency to think of authority in merely dry kind of bureaucratic terms as a man at a big desk who sends out orders. Authority also carries the meaning of a capacity to really do something, to really fix things. Real authority brings clarity in the midst of confusion. Do you remember this place in the gospel where people were amazed by Jesus because he taught as one who had real authority and not like all the other teachers they had heard? There was something clear about what Jesus said. Something real about it that the others didn't have. Scripture bears God's authority because it speaks clearly and truthfully about the world and about us. What is the world? It is God's good and beautiful creation that has been broken and torn apart by evil. What are we as human beings? We are God's image bearers created in love, but we've rejected love time and again and still God has committed himself to our redemption and to the world's too he became flesh showing us the true image true humanity he embodied grace and truth as we heard in John 1 again we were so confused that we rejected the word made flesh This is what a lot of us do with gifts that we don't know fully how to receive. Gifts that are almost too good for us. We push them away and we reject them. 
Christ died and rose to redeem and refashion us, to refashion the creation after his image and in his love. And when we're baptized, our sanity is restored. We receive clarity about who we are and what we're made for. God speaks his word over us, as we talked about last week in the sacraments. This is my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. And all of our life's work, each of us, our life's work is to live into that identity. You're my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, none of this is to say that there are not confusing things in, in Scripture. There are. But much of Scripture offers a stunning clarity about us and about the world. The greatest difficulty with Scripture is receiving its truthfulness about us and about the world while living in a world that thrives on blurring the truth, on creating confusion. I'm grateful for what the late writer uh, Flannery O'Connor said. She said that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Many of the modern arguments against Scripture's truthfulness and authority sound more like a weak stomach than genuine doubt. We are challenged to receive Scripture's authority in a world where we're constantly discipled by the world to take authority into our own hands, to be our own authority. If we do resist scripture, let, let me invite you to make this a practice in your life. If there is a place where you read scripture and you resist it, you need at minimum ask yourself, why am I resisting this? And be honest with yourself and why that is. What do we mean when we say that scripture has authority? Uh, we mean we don't mean that Scripture itself is God, but we do mean that God has authority and He's placed His authority within Scripture. This is how God governs His kingdom and His world, through Scripture. Now, one final point. I mentioned this earlier, but I, I want to go into more detail on it as we close. When we say that Scripture has authority we also mean that it brings us into an intimate union with Christ. This is the goal of Scripture, to bring us into intimate union with Christ. Now, what, what does union with Christ have to do with Scripture's authority? These, these things don't seem to pair together. Authority and union and relationship. Because God's authority and power are in Scripture, it has the ability to do these amazing things to speak powerfully into our lives, and to be a portal of sorts into intimate union. So in this way, Scripture is like a love letter that is sent in the midst of a war across a long distance, except it's even more powerful than this. Scripture carries with it the presence and assurance of Christ in the midst of the battle of life in the world. We are trying to endure life in the world. We're trying to be faithful to Christ. And Scripture is where we meet with Him in the midst of this battle, where He comes to aid us and to carry us through the battle. So Christ, in 
John chapter 1 is described as the Word made flesh. He embodies the fullness of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, He embodies Scripture. Now, God can speak to us in all kinds of places. We're not trying to limit this. It's amazing. Psalm 19 starts out with talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God, and they speak, and there's no end to their speaking. But then it moves to the particular revelation of Scripture. And it speaks to how Scripture speaks to us. God can speak to us in all kinds of places, but Scripture is a place where He has promised us that He will speak reliably and where He will meet with us in His own presence. So Christians, we, we don't read the Bible as an academic exercise simply to learn something new, though we certainly learn good things from it. We read it to live in union with Christ, who is our Lord and our King. But how do we read Scripture in this way? Sometimes it is complex. As we close, I want to invite you into uh, this kind of relationship with Scripture. Some of you have this, and that's wonderful. But we all need to receive it afresh as the authority of God in our lives and as a means of this kind of loving union with God. Now, here's a primary way that I want to invite us to do this. I like to call the Psalms the Swiss Army Knife of Scripture. They are prayer and they are Scripture combined. You know, Swiss Army Knives has all these different tools on them. You carry it with you, and you can, uh, uh, you, you can work with a screw. You can cut something. You can do anything you would ever. You can open a bottle. You can do anything. The Psalms are this combination of prayer and inspired Scripture. They sit in the dead center of our Bibles as a way of teaching us how to engage all of Scripture. Scriptures to the left, Scriptures to the right. You engage Scripture prayerfully as an act of conversation between us and God. Listening to Him and speaking the Word back to Him. The Psalms are the way that Jesus prayed. We hear Jesus pray Psalm 22 when He's on the cross. They are inspired prayer. Reading a psalm or two every day, one in the morning, one in the evening, using them as a means of your prayers. This is a baseline way of learning to live in union with God. Uh, now, this isn't to say there aren't m you can't engage more Scripture. Do more. That's fantastic. This is baseline. You want to learn to pray and live in relationship with God through His Word. The psalms are the place to go. This is what Christians have always done. So what do we mean that Scripture has authority? Well, we mean that God has put His authority in Scripture, that it speaks truthfully about us and about the world. And we mean that God uses Scripture to bring us into union with Himself and to union with Christ, our Redeemer. Now, do you remember that place where Jesus says to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone? but by every word from the mouth of God. Scripture is bread. And this is how God has chosen to feed you. So won't you 
Won't you commit your lives to this book that you can live with all of your life until the day you die and still not understand its mysteries? Won't you commit your life to searching the depths of this book so that you might learn how to search the mysteries of God and live in a loving union with him? This is his gift to you. This is his love letter so that you would know his love and learn to love him in return. Now let's pray.